Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. This is your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, and we are joined by our oldest and best friends, starting with Rosa Brooks in Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And in California, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, my friends. And somewhere, I don't know, Washington, I'm guessing from his background, David Sanger of the New York Times. He's shaking his head. Is he in Vermont? Where are you? Uh, He is in Vermont. He's in Vermont. Very, very nice. Well, I can it's, turn the camera around and show you the cows, but you know it's a long distance. Are they in the house now? No, they. We we try to keep them out of the house. You know, um, that, that's that's only one of those things that you guys do in like you know Brooklyn and Manhattan. Yeah, no, in Manhattan we don't. <laughs> don't they're big animals <laughs> crawling around here, but it's another story. So <laughs> it's the middle of the summer, and you would think nothing was going on, and everywhere you look in the world, something is going on. Um, I haven't had a vacation yet, so I'm going to give myself a vacation by doing kind of free association moderating, and I'll just throw out a word, and then you guys can respond to the word. Um, David, prior to coming on, you, you, you offered one up, so I'm going to start with that, and we'll go around with each one of these things, uh, and then you guys can play if you want to also. But let me start with you, David. Let me start with the word that you threw out, uh, Barr, Bill Barr. Let's just, mm. you know. Well, first of all, David, that's not a good word. Can we have yeah, a better I, word? <laughs> I I want to know how your free association moderating on vacation differs from the everyday moderating that we usually get. <laughs> and, and is that bar with one R or two R's, or do we get to choose? You can choose, and it differs because I'm not using full sentences. Yeah, I um I actually was offering up the word Rousseau. But the two of them go together because the other day in his Fox News interview in which he was trying to describe um, how the party that he's not a member of was trying to dismantle the world, he actually compared uh, the Democrats and protesters to Rousseau and suggested that they were they wanted a level of individualism that um, was uh, inconsistent with running an actual working society. And I thought to myself that on a summer uh, broadcast, there would be no better thing for Corey (laughs) Shake and for Rosa to go play with than the comparison between, say, the Democrats today and the Biden campaign and so forth and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Go you on, know, Corey. I, Go I, on. 
I love it when David pitches him slow and right over the middle of the plate for me. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Um, so first of all, uh, bonus points to the Attorney General for evoking the philosophical counterpoint of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's notion of people as inherently cooperative and not in need of the organizing structures of a state with the Hobbesian state of nature that requires a strong hand and an assertive government. But, but really, um, is it a healthy or positive thing for the Attorney General to come down on the side of Thomas Hobbes on that argument in a free society? Moreover, uh, well, I was I thinking. I was, I was thinking of writing a biography of him called Leviathan. So maybe <laughs> that would work. Well, you know, in my book on what uh, nine different translations across four hundred years of Western history, nine different translations of the Iliad tell us about changing nature of warfare. I did learn that Thomas Hobbes translated the Iliad. Uh, and it's of a piece with Leviathan. It is important in critiquing the Attorney General to realize he is opting for an undemocratic organization of society. Uh, and so when I heard it, uh, when I heard the Rousseau comparison, David, the visualization that I had was uh, of Marat dead in the bath because the attorney general feels to me like he's doing his job a lot more like those French revolutionaries who were chopping heads off right and left than like any other comparison. But I saw Rosa yawning, so she now has to answer. <laughs> no, no, wait, no, wait, no. wait just one second here. This is an opportunity <laughs> that I've been waiting for for like five years now. But... When you mention Bill Barr and bathtub in the same sentence, Corey. You didn't need that visual. <laughs> I did not need that visual. <laughs> but you watch. Now, Rosa's going to make us all feel bad, and she's going to turn this to Montesquieu. No, no, I'm not. Um, I'm I'm. I'm having trouble, David, once you start suggesting that I free associate. It's so hard for me not to free associate anyway. And when you actually <laughs> tell me to, it's very hard for me to keep my adult ADHD brain focused. Um, but I started out, I, another conversation that we started to have before we started recording was about the other kind of bars, the bars with one R. Uh, and why the heck, uh, asked Corey, we have put so much of our national energy into keeping bars open at the expense, say, of keeping schools open. Um, so I was free associating in that general direction when you said bar. Um, um, uh, although I did start, my brain did start randomly spouting quotations like, man was born free and yet he is everywhere in chains. Um, but, but no, I, I mean, I, it made me want to start talking about the COVID response again and the other failure of the COVID response in part because the Trump administration obviously has been in total denial that there exists a problem and telling everybody that we need to get the economy going again, which, which has led to this absurdity where we have, in most states, we have bars and casinos open and things like that, but we are incapable of, of figuring out a way to safely, safely open our schools. 
Um, there's something else I was going to say, but now I'm just free associating completely randomly. Bars of soap, uh, iron bars, prison bars, children in cages, uh, noble savage, Montesquieu. Anything else we want to talk about? <laughs> well, why don't we pick up um, as one natural? French Revolution Jacobins. Wait a minute. Hold on. We keep going <laughs> I already here. got that. She already got that. She did get that, yeah. but you didn't say the word. It was Guillotine. <laughs> well, why don't we why don't we pick up on Hobbes uh, for Hobbes, our next yes. our next round yeah. of this? You and I were born twins. And and no, uh, and and David, I'm not going to go where you think I'm going with nasty, brutish, and short. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to go to <laughs> Belarus and Lukashenko. Oh, okay. So. Well, that's- Close, close to a close to a Hobbesian um, uh, state of nature, but uh, you know, not quite there. So here we have the um, the most authoritarian leader in Europe, and he's got some real competition these days. So you know, it didn't used to, and um, he won uh, the election yesterday with an astounding seventy nine percent of the vote. That a um, triumph of democracy. It is a triumph of democracy, and apparently I'm everybody sure loves him. Everybody does, and I didn't realize how many people loved him. And still, I'm having a hard time figuring out quite how many people loved him because they shut off so much of the city just in case some of the people who didn't love him came out to protest. And I'm sure that many of you all had the same thought uh, that I did, which is when we look back on the horror that is 2020, will this look like the most suspect election that we have seen all year? Yeah, I. Uh, Corey, time. Corey, um, you 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 pick up on this, and as we all try to ignore the leaf blowers outside of Rose's house. <laughs> um, well, uh, I really, really hope it is true that the Belarusian election will be uh, the one we look at with horror. Um, several things were really striking. First, how effective civil society uh, organized in Belarus to, uh, to bear witness outside of polling stations and catch the corruption. You know, people trying to sneak ballots out of windows, climbing down ladders, um, and the way the absolute courage of Belarusians living in such a repressive society to demand the right to choose their leaders just has me in awe of their courage. And it has me ashamed of our own government for doing so little to help support the people of Belarus in this regard. Uh, It also makes me worried of what Vladimir Putin might do in Belarus and in other places, because this is precisely the kind of revolution he rightly and justly fears the Russian people demanding for themselves. And so I'm fearful that the the violence he perpetrated in Ukraine might also be perpetrated against Belarus. I have that same exact fear, Corey. Rosa. Yeah, no, I have the same fear. I also, I, I, I also think that um, I'm sure our own fearless leader Donald Trump is looking with interest at the uh, balloting results in Belarus and 
thinking, now why can't I have whatever it was, 79% uh, support in the vote in, in, in November? And, and I should have that. I deserve that. Um, and how can I make that happen? So I'm a little concerned that we're giving him ideals, although the reality is we probably don't need to give him ideas. But what, what is interesting, I think, is is what is going, what will, what will we see in the coming days and weeks from the, the people of Belarus? Um, what are we seeing in Lebanon? What are we seeing in terms of, of mass mobilizations of people who are speaking out against governments that in one way or another are not meeting their needs? And what lessons in both do other autocrats, including our own budding autocrat, take away from this? Um, obviously, Trump doesn't care about aiding the people of Belarus because he has no particular interest in uh, aiding pro-democracy movements anywhere. Um, he's perfectly happy to abandon them. Uh, I, I wonder, however, whether I, I do. I do wonder. I know. I, I know. I'm on record as having said many times that it, there's no point in asking what Trump's strategy is because he doesn't really have a strategy. He's like a four-year-old with a tantrum. Um, but obviously, he has people around him, including Bill Barr, who are capable of strategic thinking. And I do wonder what their takeaways are as they watch, uh, as they watch in various places. The, the interplay between increasingly autocratic governments and popular movements and what, what that portends for the near future here in the United States. Okay, well, let me go to something slightly longer than just a word there, because I want to pick up on that, David. You have this past week, these past few days, massive demonstrations in Belarus and strong government reaction against it, including shutting down the whole internet. I thought you would Really pick up on that as that's up your alley. You have in Beirut people in the streets and now the whole government resigning in the wake of um, the explosion that took place there. You have in Israel people in the streets um, uh, uh, protesting against the corruption of the Netanyahu regime. And you have in China the government in Hong Kong going into Hong Kong and taking down very prominent democracy activists uh, and going into the offices of publications and, you know, rousting people out and stealing files and, and shutting it down. This is, you know, I mean, this is what Trump is seeing in the world right now. What does that leave you with? Well, it leaves us all with democratic recession, right? I would say of that group, um, Hong Kong in some ways is the most surprising for this year, not for the direction in which the Chinese moved, but the speed with which they moved. I didn't find anybody that I know among China experts and certainly among the administration who thought that uh, Deng should use um, <clears throat> this moment of COVID-19 and distraction to basically dismantle first the independence of of Hong Kong that was still guaranteed for a number of years under the um, agreement with the British. But secondly, the degree to which he is imposing China-like restrictions. And I think that the marching of the editor of um, uh, the Apple uh, newspaper, one of the most pro-democracy uh, uh, voices, one of the, the most um, uh, important of them, uh, out of the newsroom yesterday, uh, really showed you uh, that the Hong Kong that we've all known is gone. Um, for the others that you mentioned, um, uh, and you left out Chicago, where there was a good-sized protest uh, uh, yesterday, 
I think what we are basically seeing is that uh, a global crisis has um, led to uh, a speed up of sort of authoritarian impulses. And um, certainly President Trump's unwillingness to stand up on these issues over the past few years made people feel like they had a pass and maybe made them feel like if he doesn't get reelected, they have a brief window. Uh, and so I think that's a, a good deal of what we're seeing. They have a brief window to get away with this before a different government comes in that might actually, you know, make a difference here. The administration did the other day do a few sanctions against um, Carrie Lam, the, uh, um, the Hong Kong administrator, uh, Chinese appointed, and others for their crackdowns in Hong Kong. Uh, the Chinese responded uh, by action against Ted Cruz, among others, uh, who um, I, I'm not sure he was entirely broken up by this piece of news. Um, but uh, I think we're headed to a period where you're going to see countries race to do their crackdowns while they think that they've got uh, a very uh, available six months to do it. So, Corey, it seems like, you know, Thomas Hobbes would be loving this summer. <laughs> Sadly, I think that's right, David. Uh, the rollback of free societies, the collapse of confidence on be on the part of people in free societies that our values are universal and that others are yearning for the things we take for granted. The unwillingness to put shoulder to the wheel and help countries in transition to get to better opportunities for themselves. I'll note that the, um, that the Secretary of Defense announced that we will be drawing down half of our troops in Afghanistan before the end of the year, despite the fact that the conditions-based withdrawal we said we were engaged in is nowhere in evidence that we are just ceding the country to the Taliban um, and I feel like that's the fingerprint of the policy the administration wants. This is an entirely electoral-driven national security policy, not a national security-driven national security policy on the part of the Trump administration. And as we talked about last week, I am really worried about uh, the choices the administration might make as it begins to believe polling that suggests the president might not be reelected, I think they're trying to lock into place things that will make it more difficult for a future administration to carry out a different kind of foreign policy. Rosa, you look very thoughtful, staring well, no. out into space. <laughs> I was actually thinking about a... Um, another aspect of what we're seeing in the world right now, which, which is a little bit paradoxical. Um, I think we're, we're simultaneously seeing, uh, and particularly due to the pandemic and, and of course, climate change, uh, we're, we're, we're in the middle of an object lesson in how badly wrong things can go in our interconnected world if you do not have robust and effective global governance mechanisms. 
Um, yet at the very same time, we're also seeing in a variety of places, including the United States in a, in a sense, and in Europe, um, problems of scale. Uh, we're seeing how hard it is to function effectively in a democratic polity um, if you're just too darn big and too diverse. Um, so we're seeing sort of simultaneously a, a resurgence of the recognition of the need for more effective global governance mechanisms and a resurgence of a sort of demands for more localized solutions to problems. And I don't know how we resolve that. You know, I know that there are political scientists who spend their time trying to figure out the optimal level for different types of decision-making to occur. But I, you know, I don't think they have solved this problem for us. But that, that was sort of my meta reaction to all of this is that this is going to be one of the challenges for the next decade and, and, and longer is going to be to sort of figure out how do we simultaneously recognize that there are some kinds of problems that have to be solved at a global level and that there are other kinds of problems that have to be solved at a very local level. How do we get that right? Is there a way to get that right? And, and what are the what level of chaos, violence, misery, and suffering is it is going to be involved if we don't get that right? So, David, let me pick up on Rose's theme about decision-making and turn to two things that have happened in the past week um, that suggest that higher powers have something of a sense of humor, um, even in dark circumstances, um, or, or a sense of irony in any event. Uh, because we lost uh, a real leader in the U.S. policy community, uh, someone I had the highest regard for, and I suspect all of you did as well, uh, in Brent Scowcroft, uh, former national security advisor, only person to serve as national security advisor twice, um, uh, the model by which national security advisors are today judged. Uh, and within about 48 hours of that, the current national security advisor, uh, when asked about Trump's interactions with Putin and others, said, well, I don't get involved in the president's calls with foreign leaders. It's just not something I do, um, which um, suggests how he has ended up being at the opposite end of the national security advisor spectrum. Um, well, two things. Let me start with Brent and then turn back to what we heard uh, from uh, the current uh, National Security Advisor, Mr. O'Brien. But, you know, I saw that tweeted out a number of times, and I went back and looked at the text, and I think he was saying something a little different. I think what he was saying was, I don't actually get involved with telling everybody in the world what was in those conversations, when, of course, in fact, this is a White House that regularly turns out um, brief summaries of the discussions that turn out when you dig into them to be entirely fictional, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, Brent Scowcroft was a remarkable uh, person. I, by the time I got to know him, it was um, the late 90s. He had been out of office. Of course, he had, as you said, um, served uh, in the Ford administration and um, uh, then uh, came back for um, George uh, w. Bush uh, and was there for um, the uh, for the collapse of the Soviet Union. And actually, I think the most interesting memoir of the Cold War that I've read is a joint one that George H. W. Bush and Brent Scowcroft wrote about managing that period in American history. 
Um, what was remarkable about Brent was he sort of proved the adage that you can get a lot done in Washington if you don't sit around worrying about who took the credit, and he rarely did sit around worrying about that. He is uh, revered for the fact that he was a pretty honest broker, uh, although Jim Mann wrote an op-ed piece in the Times that reminded us that he did have strong opinions, and I certainly got the benefit of those. I was particularly struck when Brent was willing to go public with some things that he had said to many of us um, in private in 2003 and warned against going into Iraq. And this cost him his job as the head of the Intelligence Advisory uh, Board, uh, National Security Advisory Board for uh, um, President George W. Bush. Um, but when you reread it today, um, he believed that, that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, but he still believed that we hadn't thought through the consequences of the invasion. And what I always was astounded by with Brent Scowcroft uh, was the degree to which he was able to look around corners and basically offer an unpopular opinion and not really care about what people would think of him. Um, he also, every summer at the Aspen Strategy Group, which he uh, helped found in the uh, earlier mid-80s, um, would lead a uh, hike up to... Um, up a mountain to a, a great fishing lake and leave people half his age, myself included, puffing to keep up with him when he was in his mid-80s, which was, you know, I thought um, sort of the quintessential Brent. Um, for O'Brien, um, you know, every national security advisor has always said they would follow the Scowcroft model. I don't see O'Brien following the, the Scowcroft model because the Scowcroft model is to deeply analyze all of your options and make sure those are all presented to the president. And I found the most astounding part of the O'Brien interview on Face the Nation on Sunday to be the part where he said, we've already sanctioned the Russians, and really, what else could we go do to them? Yeah. Which seemed to me to be sort of inviting the Russians to just come on in and do more in this election because we were out of deterrent capability. Well, clearly we're not. Uh, he never even mentioned the fact that we now believe that uh, there's been a, a lot of um, text messaging on the phones of Russians to remind them of the millions of dollars of rewards for those caught interfering in the, in the American election. Um, but that he basically was saying, we have no tools. And uh, Brent would have had a few pointed things to say about that. Corey? Uh, um, I, too, think Brent Scowcroft was an extraordinary national security advisor, and it has to be a very difficult balance to hit to be both an honest broker of interagency disagreement and also uh, the president's most trusted advisor. Another hard balance to hit is uh, appreciating that cabinet secretaries are your superiors, not your peers, even though you have the best access to the president of anyone. A secret of uh, Brent Scowcroft's success as national security advisor, though, that I think shouldn't be underplayed is having a ruthless deputy in Robert Gates. Uh, who would make good on threats that 
if you don't represent your your department's position accurately in the meeting, you don't get to come to any future meetings. And part of the reason the Scowcroft system works is because of the iron fist inside the velvet glove of, of Scowcroft's gracefulness. I also think that um, while Scowcroft's perspective on the world is very f- much in fashion right now, that is that you need to take counsel of the limits of your ability to affect situations. Uh, it risks being overplayed by those who would have a more restrained and less engaged American foreign policy. Um, and, you know, they would argue that, uh, uh, that you shouldn't try and shape how countries evolve. You shouldn't lead with American values. And those people should remember that Brent Scowcroft is not only the guy who argued against the 2003 invasion of Iraq and supported uh, only ejecting Iraq from Kuwait in 1991, not, not eliminating the threat that Saddam Hussein posed. He was also the guy who favored the unification of Germany as an historic opportunity to create a different and better Europe. So he's not a restraint candidate, or he's not the patron saint of restraint in American foreign policy. He's the patron saint of good judgment about when, uh, what opportunities are available and how to advance America's interests. Raza? I don't have a lot to add to that. Uh, I was never a huge fan of Brent Scowcroft um, prior to the Trump administration, uh, but I've become a really big fan of Brent Scowcroft. Um. Okay. Um, I think that may be the shortest response you've ever had to a question here. Was there a question there? What was well, the question? Well, no, no. I just wanted you to pick up on, on both the departure of Scowcroft and the vapidity of O'Brien. Um, it, is, it is hard to add more to the, the vapidity of O'Brien is so total that all thoughts that move in that direction get sucked into a vast black hole uh, where they just dissipate without a trace. No question about that. David, you guys had a good uh, story uh, over the, the, the weekend about what life is like in the Trump intelligence community. And I, 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 when I was reading it, I was thinking, I wonder what David thinks about all this. So what, what do you think about all that? Um, it was a very good piece that Robert Draper wrote in the Times Magazine. Um, tells you something about the modern digital age that you read it this weekend. And I think it's in the magazine next weekend, (laughs) 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 which means that we're just giving you advanced intelligence. Um, So the essence of the piece was it started with this remarkable finding that last summer there was a national intelligence estimate that was coming together that dealt with, uh, what Russia was doing early on to um, affect the election, and that basically it kept getting watered down and watered down and watered down some more for fear of what the president's reaction would be. 
This wouldn't be the first time we've heard things uh, like that. You may remember that um, when Kristen Nielsen was uh, head of the Department of Homeland Security, she tried to organize some meetings about how we would defend in this election against Russian interference and was told by the then chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, um, you can go do whatever you need to go do, but just don't bring it up at this White House because the president will see it as an attack on the legitimacy of his own uh, election. And um, so you now have a lot of people in the intelligence community who are concerned that it is career ending to go give the president news he does not want to hear. And that's because for many of them, it has been career ending. And so it's not at all an illegitimate concept. So it's a different kind of politicization than we worried about before. You know, we worried during the run up to the um, uh, war in Iraq, which we were discussing before in the context of Brent Scowcroft's um, uh, opposition to it, that um, intelligence was being cherry picked. But that's a different thing. That's something the consumer does to pick out what they like and what they don't from the report they receive. What you're hearing now across the board is a discouragement of actually producing that intelligence. And I can't think of anything that is more dangerous. We had some other examples of it in the paper last week. Um, Mark Mazzetti and Bill Broad and I wrote about a suspected nuclear facility in Saudi Arabia that the Chinese appear to be helping with. It's early stage. It wouldn't help them build a weapon right away. Can you imagine if the Iranians were doing this, how much we would have heard about it? Instead, we got nothing out of the, or very little out of the, uh, out of the administration and the intelligence community, even when we sent them satellite photographs of the site. Um, so um, you're seeing a lot of examples of news we don't want to hear because it's awful inconvenient to our message. All right. Did you see the intelligence story or do you have any reaction to what David just said? I did. And I'm really glad that I am um, not visual. I'm only avatar so that I can spare deep state radio listeners from the sight of me with my hair standing on end from the revelations uh, in the articles that David just announced. And I wholly uh, endorse and want to reinforce the importance of the dangers he's highlighting. By the way, your avatar does have smoke coming out of the top of your head. So that's, you know. <laughs> okay, so really you're saying I'm not saving our listeners very much. No. <laughs> My favorite thing about that avatar, incidentally, is that she literally has the accoutrements of war hanging off of her purse strings, and it's a nice reminder of the sources of American military power. Um, but, but back to the serious points about, about the administration's failures, it, it really, really reinforces that in only three and a half years, the Trump administration has managed to corrode, degrade, and um, damage institutions of American democracy that were thought to be strong enough to withstand the burden. The inspectors general, policing uh, corruption at agencies, 
are are on conveyor belts out of the administration. The uh, intelligence apparatus being hijacked by political act, partisan political actors um, endeavoring to cover up uh, what the president is doing rather than shed light on threats to American Americans' way of life. It really, it's incredibly scary. And among the many reasons that I plead with people not to vote for President Trump, not to waste their ballot by writing in somebody who's not going to get elected, but actually to vote for the Democratic ticket for president is to prevent the real destruction of democratic institutions in the United States. Do you have a lot of friends who are talking about voting for Kanye? (laughs) You know, it's sad to see his wife reminding people that he has mental health problems. Um, Had, 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 Had only Melania done the same. But let me just say, my political judgment is he's going to take Trump voters. He's not going to take Biden voters. We shall see. From your lips. Rosa, what do you think about these intelligence stories? One of the questions it raises in my mind is what's going to happen if if Trump wins. Um, You know, I, I think that the demoralization that David was talking about, which obviously extends well beyond the intelligence community and the the career uh, career government officials across the entire executive branch. Um, I think there have, there are a lot of people in my sense, um, uh, you know, whether they are people who would consider themselves Republicans or Democrats, there are, there are a lot of career people who have been saying, this is out of control. This is crazy. Uh, this can't go on, but you know, if I can just kind of hang in there until this guy is voted out of office, things will get back to normal. Um, and I do wonder if Trump is reelected uh, or somehow manages to cling to power one way or another, if we will see a rash of departures um, much in a much bigger way than before, because I think it is one thing if you're, it is one thing to kind of hang in there, demoralized uh, for four years. It's another thing when you're like, uh oh, and now it's going to be four more of this. So that I think that's the point where people start saying, I'm finding a new career. You know, well, and happened, I, we've seen that already. I mean, we, that- we, we, we have, but not as much as I actually would have expected. Um, you know, I think we, and we obviously at the senior levels, we have seen vacancies. We still see vacancies across the entire executive branch. But, but I wonder at what point the, the, trickle, which has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger in the last three and a half years, turns into just an absolute gush. Uh, and and what impact that has on, you know, I, I mean, I, I think all of us, I think, are on some level reluctant to seriously contemplate what would happen in a second Trump administration, because it just seems too awful to contemplate that. Um, but, but I think the level of paralysis we have seen already I think that the level of confusion we have caused to our partners and allies and comfort to our enemies, I think, I think everything we have seen already is going to seem like nothing if we end up with the second Trump administration. I think that we will have mass resignations. We, we haven't had that yet. You know, we've had, we've had ones and twos and threes, but we haven't had that kind of, we haven't had mass resignations, but I do wonder if we will see that. Indeed. 
Well, we, we only have like three minutes left, so let me get a little bit lighter here. Uh, David and Corey and Rosa, we're almost six months into the lockdown period. I would like you to share with uh, your friends in the Deep State Radio um, universe um, something in your life that's changed because of COVID, you know, probably, possibly permanently, you know, the way you dress, what you eat, what do you do during the day? <laughs> How have you been changed in your day-to-day life by the lockdown, David? Well, first, I actually had to put on a necktie the other day for a, a, a TV hit. And I realized I stopped for a moment to think, how do I tie this? <laughs> <laughs> so the, all the people out there who are betting that you used a clip-on tie have now lost the bet. They've now, they've now lost it. <laughs> I haven't used a clip-on tie since I had to go to bar mitzvahs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, I'm sorry, Dave. So, you know, the other day we were having a conversation among Times correspondents among, about what's worked and what hasn't in this work-from-home environment. Um, as David will constantly remind you, I've been at the New York Times for a long time. Um, he would maintain back to coverage of the Taft administration, but we know that it was actually it was actually Coolidge who you know is not many miles from me here in Vermont. Um, but um, for us, we've been sort of living off of past relationships with editors and colleagues and all that, and you know we've gotten into a rhythm, and I think we're still turning out a pretty good uh, work from home uh, newspaper um, uh, and and site. Uh, quite good. In fact, some ways um, uh, as good as it was in the days when we were all in the office, which does raise some interesting questions. But for to correlate it back to the conversation we were just having, to get people in the administration to talk about things that are um, truly sensitive, sometimes even classified, um, that's a very difficult thing to do if you can't meet people face-to-face. And one of the things that worries me is that over time, that key part of accountability in national security reporting is going to suffer some. Um, I worry about younger reporters coming into journalism for the first time who don't have the chance to build up the informal relationships that come from hanging around the office or going out for drinks that night or whatever. Um, where you sort of learn the culture and the lore the, uh, of a place. It doesn't apply just to journalism, but especially to journalism. And so I worry, worry whether there is going to be a long-term effect here for people who are trying to sort of figure out um, a business that I think we've all learned in the past three years is more critical to our democracy than we ever believed. Corey? Uh, so David just, uh, as he so admirably does, ignored the instructions of a lighthearted consequence of the pandemic. I That's am going I knew I could count on you. In a rare departure from form, fail to follow instructions, uh, not fail to follow instructions, and offer just the trivial insight that I am now completely feral. Um, it has always been my desire to spend my workday either in pajamas or in running gear, and I now get to do that, and I'm very pleased of it, and I have the ability for people not to see me while I can still engage in stuff. 
So I'm super happy about those outcomes. And in seriousness, what I notice in my community is people more worried about each other's well-being, more worried about the least fortunate amongst us, and thinking about how they can contribute to easing each other's burdens. And I very much hope that's a generalized outcome of this terrible time. Mm. Rosa. Mm. Well, I think I've gotten fatter during the pandemic, but luckily, uh, thanks to Zoom's touch up my appearance, there's really no way for anyone to tell, which I, which I appreciate. Um, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I actually do think that this is revealing to all of us how many things we, for, for, all, I, for all the deprivations, and the deprivations are, are real and enormous, and for all of the suffering, which is also real and enormous, you know, I think that the forcing so much work online has revealed that some of it really didn't need us to be in our offices in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, there's really no reason for anybody ever to go to DMV, to the DMV except to take their driving test. Almost everything else that they used to make us go to the DMV for turns out to be completely unnecessary. You can do it from home. Um, and I sincerely hope that across the board, institutions and workplaces will take heed of that and will give people in the future greater flexibility because for all of the ways in which I, I both personally miss seeing my colleagues and friends and I also recognize that, as David says, the, the impact of work online, which is already a privilege since many people don't have the option of working online, but for those of us who do, the impact is is, is greater and, and more detrimental on younger people who are just starting out who don't already have networks of whether it's sources or contacts or solid relationships. Um, it's much harder to form them over, over this medium. But on the other hand, um, there are all kinds of ways in which, boy, am I happy not to be fighting my way through DC rush hour traffic a couple times a day. Um, and I now feel like when this pandemic is over, Anybody ever who wants to have a meeting with me before about 10 a.m. is going to have to do it with me on Zoom or after about 4 p.m. Because why should I find my way through traffic? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, I, so, so I think that there are some potential work-life silver linings if we could figure out how to hang on to them in the future when this is over. Yeah, I totally agree. And I don't think any of those things are going back. I think a lot of people won't go back to the office. I think a lot of people won't take trips they didn't have to. I think Corey will never put on a dress again. She'll wear her (laughs) sweatpants. Um, In any event, thank you guys for another uh, useful way to kick off the week. uh, Thought-provoking world touring. And uh, we hope that everybody will come back if you want to see what else we've got going. In the past few weeks, we've been doing four or five podcast week. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, see what we've got going, sign up, become a member, get masks, do all the things you can to support us. We can use the support. And if you haven't done that, go on, just go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, give us a little bit of support. Um, Think of all the joy that these guys have given you over the years. Um, In any event, Thank you very much, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.